welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source software sustainability for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? Warum war es nichts in Deutsch? Probably because I don't speak German. That's why I didn't introduce it in German. I'm sorry, everyone. Very excited to talk to our guest today. Before we get to him, I want to make sure you know who the other voices on this podcast are. I am, of course, Richard Litauer. Hello, everyone. Great to be here. Thank you, Richard. And then we also have Ben Nichols. Ben, how are you doing today? Warm, but good warm. Yes, it is hot in the UK. Record temperatures going on there. Luckily, our guest is not in the UK, but in Berlin, where it has never been warm and muggy. Good Lord, no. Cornelius Schumacher is one of the open source stewards or the open source steward at DB Sistel. DB Sistel is, of course, Deutschbahn. Deutschbahn is the second largest rail system in the world and one of the like best examples of how a train should run. Cornelius might laugh at that, but I think it's a much better system than, say, Amtrak because I live in America. Sorry, America. Get your trains together. But Cornelius is working as an open source steward there. Now, you may recognize his name. We've already had him on the podcast. He was in one of the short 10-minute episodes that came out of FOSS Backstage. FOSS Backstage was a conference that happens every year, run by our really good friends at Plain Schwartz. Hi, Paul. Love you. And Cornelius is one of the guests who agreed to come on and just have a short conversation about open source sustainability, what they think about the world of open source and what their job is. So if you want to go listen to that for 10 minutes, you can do that. But here we're going to dive in just a bit deeper to talk about what it means to work as an open source steward at DB Sistel, what it means for the world of open source, and how Cornelius brings his long history of working with KDE and other open source communities into this position. So with that context, Cornelius, how are you doing? Hello, I'm happy to be here. It's actually pretty warm here as well. So I think we get the same air as the UK. <laughs> it feels like sitting in front of a warm fan. <laughs> I'm really sorry to hear that. I've actually looked it up and Berlin has the exact same Copperberg climate taxonomy description as I do in Vermont. And I'm currently sitting here kind of sweating as well. Like humid continental climates are the worst. So not a rainforest, no fun boa constrictors or anything and not Norwegian. It's just kind of there. Sorry, it's warm. So tell me a bit about more about what you do as an open source steward at DB Sistel. Yeah, open source steward is a fancy title. In the end, in most companies, I think you would call that an open source program office. So my job is to take care of how we as an enterprise can use open source, how we can use open source software for everything. Also, how we can contribute to open source software. So my day is split up between a little bit of administrative things, bureaucracy, governance, setting guidelines, but also talking to people, helping them to make sense of open source and solve the everyday problems you have there. And also facing the outside world as well. So being representative in several organizations. And then my favorite part, being part of the overall open source community. That's where I came from, and I have no intentions to leave it. I love that. I also love that you identify as being an OSPO officer, because a lot of people in OSPOs haven't come directly out of open source. They sort of are tangential open source. They work there as like a manager type thing. It's great to see people who have a long history. Like I said, you have like 25 years with KDE, which is amazing. So you know how open source works and what's going on there. One of the questions I have already right off the bat is you mentioned... You are kind of the OSPO. The open source steward is the one is, is 
the person in charge of things. What I'm curious about is how big is DB Sistel? Do you also apply to all of DB of Deutsche Bahn, I guess? And how many people do you have working under you at your Oslo? Just so I can get an idea of like the amount of work that you have. Yeah, I think that the labeling and the form of organization always is a challenge because that's always different in different types of organizations. So for us, Deutsche Bahn is a huge company. Obviously, the whole group has something like more than 300,000 employees. DBS Estelle is the IT daughter. We are a bit more than 5,000 employees, so still a pretty big organization. And we are not the only ones doing IT in Deutsche Bahn, but it's kind of a focus and then we're doing a lot of, so we are the, yeah, we often claim we are the digital partner of Deutsche Bahn. So we know how to do digital transformation in the train area and uh, software is, an, of course, the essential part and open source is another essential part of software. So I always say you can't do software these days without open source. And the only way how to deal with that in a professional and productive and a safe way is to yeah, get the expertise. And that's why this position was created. It, it was part of a longer journey. So I joined Deutsche Bahn, maybe sister, about three years ago. But others in the company have talked about open source, have dealt with the questions, and also they had some of the fights, the early fights to convince people open source actually works. <laughs> so I'm basically building on that work. And organizational-wise, we are a pretty distributed company. The whole group is very diverse, a lot of different company parts. And we are also within Sister. we work in a pretty distributed way. We call this a network organization. So it's not the traditional hierarchy where you have very strict team boundaries, hierarchies, but we are more working in a little bit more in an organic part. So that was part of a transformation process we did over the last couple of years, which is an own interesting story in itself, but has nothing to do with open source other than I think some of the values actually are very compatible with open source. Basically, it means that I don't have a formal team. I work in a very distributed way. So I'm part of a team, the CTO team, but the CTO team has much more responsibilities than, than only open source. And so I'm working with a lot of people in the company, with the lawyers, with the business people, with the developers and so on, and in communities, in internal communities. We have a whole set of interesting organizational <laughs> constructions there where you can find people to work with. Excellent. Okay, that's a great answer. One of the things that really interested me to talk to you was Deutsche Bahn is nationalized. So you're kind of governmental, but kind of not. And you're kind of enterprise, but kind of not. Because I feel like a nationalized is a sweet spot where there's something where you're working in another level that we haven't talked to a lot of a lot of OSPOs about and what that looks like. Is this a false impression I'm getting? Is that just about where the money comes from? Do you see yourself as being a civil servant or as being more enterprise-based in terms of how your OSPO is situated compared to, say, other OSPOs in the area? I think today you can say that it's pretty much a normal enterprise. It's owned by the state, but we are operating as all other companies do as well. Of course, there are certain aspects which are special for us. I mean... Doing things in the train sector comes with a lot of regulations and so on for safety and everything. So, so you have to take care of that. Also in terms of competition, because some people in our group are building the tracks and some others are running the trains on it. But there are also other private companies which are running trains in Germany. So this all has to be balanced. But in the end, we are a group of normal companies. We are making 
profit if it works well, if Corona doesn't strike and <laughs> all other things are happening. So there's, a, of course, a whole political debate around this is the best organizational form and there's a lot of history there. But in practical terms, and especially when it comes to how we deal with open source, I mean, we were just operating as any other um, enterprise company. I'm quite interested in your experience over the course of the last three years and how your role has expanded in that time, because it sounds like you're operating in an incredibly restrictive environment, kind of like you would find in the banking industry. And from my kind of point of view, you often see involvement in open source starting from a licensing compliance point of view and evolving from there. I'm just kind of interested in like, how has that journey and that experience been for you over the course of the last three years? Yeah, license compliance obviously is one of the topics which is always there, which especially in a big company using lots of different open source components, it's a challenging task. I would say the spectrum of what we are doing is, is quite broad. So we have these heavily restricted safety relevant parts where software really is critical and there are very strong quality criteria and so on. But we also have on the other end of the spectrum, just a lot of innovation stuff, which is fun stuff, which is happening. <laughs> so I think it's similar as it is in other industries. And what we are seeing, I think, is that a lot of the open source usage and also what we are producing, we're still at the beginning of that, is growing in kind of an organic way. We are not a software company. I think that's important. I think the journey for software companies is a bit different than for companies which have other purposes. So our purpose is to bring people and bring goods from A to B and do that in a sustainable way. That's a very broad goal, which comes with a lot of responsibility, but also with a lot of challenges, a lot of physical challenges, like, I mean, moving a lot of iron across the country, that's tough. And it's not done by software, but by all kind of technology, which is also quite fascinating. But software is a means to an end uh, for us. And from that, we don't have a strategy which is very specific to open source, but it's our company strategy, of course, is about bringing people and bringing goods across the country. And from that point of view, open source is this instrument we use, like all the other companies do as well. And we do this as good as possible. But we are on this, what I often like to quote is the stages of open source adoption, where you come from this stage of denying that open source exists to this very strategic way of using it. And uh, we are on this journey at the beginning where we are using open source because that's the reality for everybody. And we are also finding out how to actually use open source in terms of contributions or even in new projects and using that to our advantage and to the common advantage of the community. Thanks. That's cool. It sounds like there is in your work a seriousness, right? Like we're talking about moving iron and across the country, we're talking about moving people and stuff as well. And I just kind of wonder how much that more serious side is opening up opportunities for you to have a conversation within the organization. So has there been a conversation about what's been happening in the US with the Biden administration's kind of security of open source and that supply chain security concept? Has that conversation happened and has that opened a new route for you to have a conversation about your relationship with open source and how you're using it and how you're contributing back. I'm also curious to hear about whether or not the German sustainable like open source fund, which is like $3.1 million that they just allocated from the German government towards open source is also included in that discussion. So I just wanted to snip that in there. 
of course, this discussion, would, which is happening in the US, has a lot of influence, I think, in the overall discussion in the community, how, how to deal with open source in a responsible way. And I think the challenges we see when open source software is used, when security updates are necessary. And this is something which is very similar, I think, in all countries, in all companies. And how to deal with that Yeah, in this world where open source software has yeah, reached this adoption, which is so crazy that there are yeah, tens of or, or even hundreds of thousands of open source modules, which are being used in some way, uh, probably in every big company. How to deal with this on scale is a challenge. And we are not there yet to really do it. I think the whole industry still has to learn how to do it properly and how to do it completely and accurately. But the discussion is happening. And of course, the U.S. perspective is a little bit different. I mean, we are not um, selling software to the U.S. government, so it's on a different level for us. But I think the learning which is happening in the industry is very important for all of us. And so we are trying to yeah, extract as much insight, information, wisdom from the discussion we're happening. And we are also actively contributing to this discussion. So mainly for me now, in the German forums where these discussions are happening. It's really good to hear that you're involved in those discussions. I know you're also involved, I've said KDE a few times now, but you pointed out in one of the things you wanted to talk about on this podcast that Ocular got the official Ecolabel Blue Angel certification from the German government, which is really interesting. And so the Blue Angel certification, as far as I can tell, is like an environmental certification saying that this is a sustainably built product. Now, longtime listeners of this podcast know that there's two definitions of sustainable that we talk about here. So one of them is environmental sustainability and the other one is code sustainability and ecosystem sustainability. We normally focus on the second one and there are hosts who would prefer we only focus on that. But I like think focusing on environmental sustainability as well because it's very interesting to think about how we build our structures, not in a vacuum, but inside of the global issues that are happening in the world. So I'm actually really curious to hear about A, this certification, B, whether you were involved with it, and C, is there anything you're doing at Deutsche Bahn, which, for instance, has a goal that recently moved up to by 2040, be carbon neutral by 2030 to be half at least carbon neutral for all of the iron they're moving, massive amounts of iron and flesh all the way across the country. And I'm curious what that looks like for you in terms of sustainable open source. Yeah, that's a very interesting field. And especially for me personally, it's very interesting because different interests match and overlap and meet each other. So I really like this topic because I think it's a very important topic and both sides of sustainability, I think, are very important for open source. And with my job at Deutsche Bahn, of course, I mean, sustainability is one of the big parts of what the company is doing. I mean, the trains are just the most sustainable transport on scale, which is there right now. And of course, we want to expand that and bring more people and more goods on the trains and on the rails. So we have, of course... Their energy consumption of trains, of course, is a huge thing and probably at the moment, at least uh, still way bigger than what hardware or software is using in terms of energy, for example. But still, software has a big influence on energy consumption, but also on how systems are designed, what you can do with them, how much control you have and so on. So it is an internal topic as well. We are talking about these things. There are communities which deal with that and initiatives within the company to also cover the IT part of working in a sustainable way and contributing to reducing our CO2 footprint. But then what I'm doing for KDE and for the Blauer Engel, that's my hobby, basically. So this is a side project. Like I do like to side projects. What we are doing with the Blue Angel, it's interesting because the certification is pretty new. 
Blue Angel is really old. It started in the 70s, actually. Germans know that because it's, and if you go to the supermarket, you will find a lot of products where you have a Blue Angel as a logo on paint or toilet paper or whatever. I mean, there are tons of products, there are ships which have a Blue Angel. And so that's interesting. And they introduced the criteria for software, resource and energy efficient software. That's the label which applies to a lot of free software. At the moment, it's focused on desktop software. So there is kind of a natural match to KDE. And when I saw that, I thought, okay, we are both even using blue as a color. So this has to happen. We have to get this Blue Angel label on our software. <laughs> and looking at the criteria, it's interesting because they cover three areas. One is really energy consumption. What kind of influence has software on the energy consumption? Measuring how much energy it consumes to, I don't know, read a PDF document, open it and flip through some pages and turn it around and make comments or whatever and then make this transparent. So that's one part. The second part is the influence of software on the lifespan of hardware. So we all don't know that. We sometimes buy new computers, new phones, not because they are bad and old and don't work anymore, but because the newest software doesn't run on them anymore. So software has a big influence there. So that's part of the criteria as well, that it supports old hardware, which we in KDE do forever anyway. And the third part, and that's, I think, a very interesting part because there are the two sustainability perspectives meet each other. That's about user autonomy. So this in, uh, includes a lot of criteria about what users have, how much control they have in choosing how the software runs, that they can install it in a modular way, that they can deinstall parts of the whole software again, that they are in control of updates and, and all that, that interfaces are open, that formats are open and so on. So this is all about the autonomy. And I think this only is possible if you have a sustainable community behind that. I mean, and for open source, you have communities. So if you have proprietary software, which is run by a company, I mean, you can also maybe fulfill the criteria, but it's, I think, much harder than if you start with the right attitude and the right values and the right approach, like it's already happening in the open source community. And this can only happen if the open source community is yeah, healthy and surviving the times where the software is used. And so from this point of view, I think there the two aspects really meet each other and we can do one part of sustainable supports the other. That's probably my favorite answer I've ever heard because you managed to weave both of them together in a really easy way that I'm just like, yes, great. Excellent. Thank you. That sounds really cool. I like it. We have talked about some hardware stuff before. I just want to give a shout out to Steve Helby's episode. That's episode number 82 with the Open Compute Project. There's also some other really interesting projects going on. I mean, Open UK with Amanda Brock, I think it's episode 49. They have like open data centers and there's just a few other areas where we're working on that. As far as autonomy goes, that's really interesting. And it's really interesting to me because you work at a large enterprise and you don't often hear large enterprises talking about autonomy of software. You hear about, well, no, actually, we need to make sure that it's secure and we're able to look into this, these projects and fix them if they're broken. And we'll pay people to do that, but that's basically some form of control. So holding that balance between autonomy of software and what the enterprise needs is a really interesting tension that I'm noticing in this discussion. One of the things I want to draw attention to that you also pointed out is Bitcom. And Bitcom is another large German company, and they released a publication on open source Lightfight and Proximfendbelungen für Open Source Software or something similar. I, again, I don't know, but there will be a link. It's only in German. I apologize, oh listeners. And looking at the people who actually contributed to this report, it seems to be a who's who of large German firms, right? Siemens is in there, Bosch, Red Hat, SAP, Price Waterhouse Coopers. I just never expected to have them come up on this podcast. 
So that's kind of interesting. Now, what's cool to me about this is that this is a German group working together to talk about open source software and releasing stuff entirely in German, which is awesome and like not unexpected. We know that Germany has these networks going on. But can you talk a bit about what this group is that made this report, what it says in the report, and how do they think about autonomy, maybe, if you want something else to add on? Yeah, Bitcom is the association of the German IT industry, so all relevant companies are in there. So and they cover a lot of different areas. They write position papers for politics and so on. And there is a pretty active working group about open source, which is there for a couple of years. And addressing exactly these questions, I mean, how can we as companies, as enterprises make sense of what is happening there, how we can use it, what are the best practices, what has to be considered, what are the risks and so on. And it's a very similar questions which are asked. So it makes a lot of sense to go into this community exchange and collect the expertise of joint wisdom of the German industry there. And of course, this is a German association. So this is the German part kind of. And I think that the document is in German is just the target audience. But of course, we are part of a bigger community and all the people who are there, they also are engaged in the more international open source community as well. But I think it's quite important to also have this local perspective. And I mean, for us, for example, for in Deutsche Bahn, I mean, we have the German in the company name already. So having German documents, is, it's quite helpful. So one of the questions I have immediately about Bitcom and about your work at Deutsche Bahn is... How are you interfacing with projects to make them more autonomous and sustainable? Are you sending funds to your dependencies? Are you tracking dependencies that are being used? Are you tracking infrastructure projects that are necessary, which aren't necessarily dependencies, but need to be shored up in order to allow this sort of stuff to work? I mean, you've mentioned the huge like seriousness of the scale at which you're working. So I'm just curious what it looks like to you working within Deutsche Bahn and then within other working groups. How are you helping out the open source community at large through that work? Yeah, of course, there, there always is kind of a, I wouldn't say culture clash, but there is some translation to be done between a lot of open source communities. I mean, not all, I mean, some are quite enterprisey, but there's a lot of translation which has to be done so that an enterprise company can understand what is happening in the open source community and in open source projects and how open source software is done and so on. And the other way around as well. And for us, I would say, most of the interaction we are having is via pretty classical commercial means. I mean, we are running a lot of software we are getting from open source vendors. So where we are not in direct contact to the community, but where it's more indirectly going through the vendors we are using. But we are also interacting with communities directly. And a thing which a company has to learn we are also, I would say, as I said before, we, we are on this path where we are learning how to participate, how to contribute, where we are growing our expertise, also growing the number of people who are able to do that in a good way. And this is happening, I would say, step for step. And having a position like I have, it's this also this kind of bridge position to make sure that we have the right points of contact so we can bring people together and see what common opportunities are there. We don't have a big funding program or something like that to fund open source software. Personally, I would say yet. I would hope that we can establish something like that, but that's more my, maybe my personal agenda because I think it makes sense and not yet a company position. But one of the challenges we really have there is that for a company like us, it's hard to spend money in ways which are not compatible with our processes. 
And what we do is we are buying trains and we are buying SAP installations and we are buying stuff like that. And there, there's a whole big process around spending money on software, of course. We also have to do public tenders when we are spending big amount of money. So that's part of our special status as state-owned company. So the process of, for example, just sponsoring an open source developer because we like the project is almost impossible to realize in the framework we have available. So I think what we are still lacking is yeah, enterprise compatible interfaces, how we can on one hand give money or support to open source projects. I mean, what we have established is contributing code. And so that's something we can do, but in financial terms, it's sometimes hard. The easiest way for us, of course, is just buy a product which is done by a company which is based on open source or buy a Linux distribution, enterprise distribution, or to pay for a service we are using, which is based on open source that works out nicely. But that, of course, only hits the people who are employed by companies to work on open source and not the volunteers who also, of course, contribute their share. You've had a lot of thinking about this over the years. I mean, your Wikipedia entry mentions that in 2009, you estimated that the cost of building KDE with 44 million lines of code was around $175 million, which doesn't sound that wrong to me, but most of that didn't go into the ecosystem, right? That was just people volunteering their time. You also have a blog post recently saying, don't sell free software cheap. And it's encouraging maintainers of code to not like put a donate button and just think about it in, in different ways because money is a bad motivator. And because, quote, it interferes with other ways of being compensated for free software development, such as reputation, control, freedom, learning, or just satisfying your curiosity. So it's really interesting to me to hear you say, we need to find an interface to pay people, but also to hear on the other side, maybe don't ask for money. I think the blog post you're referencing was published in 2013. So you've been thinking about this for a long, old time. Longer, I will admit, than I've been kind of effectively involved in this conversation, which I think for me was 2015. So yeah, I'm the same. Like I'm really interested in how your journey has kind of evolved and how those kind of two, some might say conflicting kind of views have resigned in one human. Yeah, I mean, software development isn't cheap. Software developers can earn a lot of money and that has certainly not decreased over the years since I wrote this blog post. Also, if I look at my own career, I mean, I started with doing open source in my free time a long time ago, a little bit at university and somewhat mostly on my free time. And of course, I realized that yeah, I'm privileged that I had the time to do that in my spare time. But in the end, it was the foundation for a lot of also the professional work I did. And I think I was rarely paid for really doing open source software itself, but all the experience I gained with that and all the reputation I gained by doing what I did, I mean, that in the end put me in the position where I'm now and where I'm actually pretty happy there. And I'm grateful to all the people I met on the way and all the opportunities I had. What I've seen, I mean, we experimented with putting money into free software for a long time don't know exactly when the first time we really had this experiment. It was even years before I wrote this blog post where we had some kind of bounty program, like an improvement program where people could put money on features. And then if it was implemented, they would get the money. And yeah, at that time it was interesting, but we got money for having one dinner. That, that was the result of that. <laughs> so <laughs> you could probably call that a failure. And that's kind of my personal point of view. So I got opportunities to work on open source software, of course, over, over the time. And, and sometimes people said, yeah, can you do this? And yeah, and I don't know, I buy you a TV or whatever if you implement this feature. 
And I always felt that this kind of blocked me. I mean, I didn't want to work for a TV or something. I mean, I had my job and I worked for that. I liked that. I had my free time where I also worked on free software. And taking a clear path between what I do because I really wanted to do and I have complete autonomy about what I do and I do it for free as a gift to the world in the end and have the separation to what I do as my professional job. I'm paid properly there as well. And that's where I probably don't have as much autonomy if I'm just doing it for myself, but I have maybe the leverage of a bigger company. And so I don't see it really as a contradiction there. I think we should pay people properly and we should make sure that people can have jobs where they can do open source software, they can do free software, not be exploited by paying them cheap wages just because it happens to also be their private interest. And that might not apply to everybody. And some people might maybe prefer getting a little bit of money and it's okay for them. And of course, I don't have anything against that. But I think the overall dynamics... We need a sustainable structure there and exploiting people is not sustainable. That's not something we should go for. And even if it doesn't feel like exploitation, if you look at it, paying software developers fair money for good work, that's what we should try to achieve. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, we'd just like to say it. It's nice to hear another example of how the implicit incentives to contribute to open source have really resulted in getting to where you are today and that you appreciate that and you appreciate that those incentives exist. And I think often talking about money and open source, there is a tendency for people to have a polarized kind of view of it. Like it's either everything or nothing, but this is a conversation about adding an incentive for work that maybe doesn't have any of those other implicit incentives. Maybe it's not about kind of building a network. It doesn't offer the opportunity to learn something new necessarily. So yeah, it's nice to kind of hear a story that that, yeah, it just kind of links up with that. I guess one of my questions following off of that, I agree, it's nice to hear that story. And that's also my story, right? I had time during university to get involved with coding and here I am. Even more than that, the German government paid for me to go to Germany and learn how to code in a master's program. So that was cool. Thank you, EU. And that doesn't happen to everyone. And so I'm trying to figure out for people who have a scarcity mindset or for people who have scarcity issues where money is actually difficult, where they can't just work nights. Sometimes getting a bit of money for work is really useful. And just, you know, saying, while we bootstrap your career, will help you earn what you need to survive while you continue through this period before you have the CV, before you have the commits, before you have all the things that are necessary to land a well-paid tech job somewhere. I guess I'm curious, if I were to ask you that question, what would you say? Like if someone were to come up and say, I don't have the free time, would you encourage them to work in open source? Would you not? I think people should not sacrifice their life for open source. I used to say the best which can happen for the free software project is if, I don't know, people break their leg and lose their girlfriend and lose their job and so on, so that they have a lot of time to work on free software. But that's, of course, not what I really would like to say. Again, this is not sustainable. I mean, we can't base software on the misery of people, which forces them to find something to do. And this happens to be working on open source software. So from this point of view, I think that there are opportunities, of course, to work on free software, which are paid. And for me, for example, I think and that's probably valid for a lot of companies. It's much easier to hire a software engineer, also a junior one, or also maybe even just provide education for people than just giving money to a random volunteer working on some software project. So, of course, working for a company, that's always a deal. And you also have to do things which are in the interest of the company and there has to be a match. 
So if you have the opportunity to kind of build a portfolio, of course, if you want to get employed for working on open source software, you probably should shape that in a way that, that you work on things which are interesting for companies. On the other hand, it also can be a lot of fun to work on something which is completely useless. And you never know, <laughs> maybe 20 years later, the, the latest and greatest. So it's a little bit hard for me to really answer this question because it doesn't come from my personal experience. But I think we need to support people, but we shouldn't force people or expect people. I mean, that's also something which I don't like that you say, okay, your GitHub profile is your CV. And if you don't have experience in open source, you're not an interesting software engineer. I mean, there are good reasons to not work on software in your free time. And if you have other things to do, which might be more important, that's perfectly fine. I don't think that should be a reason to expect that. But I think we can give opportunities also to people who are less privileged. And that comes with its own challenges, of course, but they are probably beyond what is specific to open source, but it's more a general problem of society. I mean, a lot of stuff we talk about seem to be general problems in society at this point. How do we work together? How do we work together sustainably? How do we make things work? Cornelius, I've really enjoyed your perspective. I've really enjoyed listening and hearing someone who knows open source so well have a position at a company like this to be able to disseminate information like this. That's not to say that other people who don't have this huge backlog since 1999 aren't doing great work. It's just really cool to see how you're doing it. And so I'm grateful for that. For listeners who want to stay involved and hear about the work that you do, maybe for German listeners who want to become involved with the group that you work with, where are some outlets where they can find you or your work online? You, you can find me on the internet. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on GitHub. You will find me sometimes if you follow what the Bitcom is doing or <laughs> other things or the to-do group. But I don't really have a central point where people can find everything about me. Usually I like to quote my blog, but as we already have seen, <laughs> there's a lot of history there. <laughs> so if you're interested in this, it's great. Uh, occasionally I write something there. Look at that to, to get more information. Otherwise, I'm always open for people just contacting me, starting a discussion or asking questions or anything. So I always enjoy that if interesting people or just any people <laughs> come with their things and want to discuss open source or similar topics. Excellent. As someone who two days ago tripped while walking and currently is basically has a broken leg and worked on my blog this morning and saw the last post was like from 2019, I am right there with you on that. So don't worry, you are not alone. Excellent, Cornelius. This was really great. This was fantastic. I really hope that you continue to do amazing work at TV Sistel and in the ecosystem at large. I'm glad that you came on to have this longer conversation. And because you did, you get to experience this second part, which is called Spotlight. Spotlight is the part of the show where we highlight people, projects, or things which have helped us out in our lives in the past, and we feel just need a little more light put on them. Ben, what is your Spotlight today? My Spotlight for today is something that an old colleague of mine showed on the internet, and I immediately checked it out and got jealous. It's called Flipper Zero. It is a basic like hacking multi-tool device. It's like the Swiss army knife of access control. It contains RFID, GPIO, USB, Bluetooth LE, NFC, and all other manner of different trend devices for you to read, replay, and abuse as much as you like. It looks like it's lots of fun. It also looks like it's really handy if you're the kind of person that's got a load of access keys and forms and tokens and all of those kinds of things as well. So yeah, it's available on Kickstarter, $119 pre-order. I might just have to do that. Nice. Thank you very much. 
my spotlight today is Erasmus Plus. I realize I may not have made this a spotlight before. So my master's was in computer linguistic, computational linguistics. And I was able to do it in both Germany at the University of Saarland in Saarbrücken and University of Malta in Nsida, Malta. And it was free. I had a scholarship and all of them have scholarships. And there's like 163 different masters. So if you like anything, you might like this. And if you know of anyone who's like, I don't know what to do right now. And maybe I want to go study in a foreign country for various reasons <laughs> and maybe get paid to do so and also get a master's degree out of it. Highly suggest checking out Europe. Highly suggest Erasmus+. Plus. So link is going to be in the show notes. Fantastic experience. Changed my life for the better. So yeah, Erasmus+. Plus. Cornelius, what is your spotlight today? I would like to put the spotlight on an edit. Uh, I think the end stands for Nirvana. And it's a text editor I used for a long time, but many years ago. I don't use it any anymore, but I'm really grateful for the work which was put into that. And for me, it stands as an example for a lot of software, which is coming from academia. So this was done by Familab. They had some internal needs. And so somebody wrote an editor and it, it, it was a fantastic graphical user interface based on motive. So coming with some license challenges. And I think they changed the license at some point to GPL and it's running with open source versions of motive. So it's still around today which is fantastic. And I'm really grateful for these also early open source work, which probably wasn't that easy as it is today. And I wrote a lot of code in this editor. So parts of KDE were written in an editor. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Cornelius, this has been great. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. As Cornelius said, you can feel free to get in contact with him and the links will be in the show notes. While you're at the show notes, click on the Apple, click on the Spotify, click on all the things and leave us reviews. We would be really curious to actually see your five-star review and no other reviews. We'd also be curious to hear your views. So if you want to talk to us and give feedback in this episode or suggest other guests or suggest people that we should never talk to ever, feel free to email us at podcast at sustainoss.org. Hop on our discourse, discourse at sustainoss.org or go to the next Sustain meetup whenever that happens. Or go on Twitter, Sustain OSS. You know, there's many ways to interact. But all I'm saying is that we appreciate it as hosts. We also appreciate feedback on Cornelius in this episode. So feel free to just tweet and say this was the best ever. And again, no, nothing else. That's not true. You can say whatever you want. But Cornelius, thank you very much. This was excellent. And yeah, good luck. Yeah, thank you. This was fun. <laughs> <laughs>